This Motzei Shabbat, we're coming together at the annual dinner to honor um, some very special people, um, Ellie and Lisa Shilowitz, Rachel and Rivaz Chachashinavili, um, Soli and Ilani Rabanapur. And we thought it would be very beautiful if we could hear from their children. Um, we're honoring them for their contributions to the Jewish community and to Yeshiva HaTorah. So I know that a lot of the reasons that they're so committed is their children. So here we are. I'm going to let everyone introduce themselves and say what grade they're in. I'm Sarah Shilowitz. I'm from Fivem, and I'm a good job for being and doing all your work. Hi, I'm Aviva Shilowitz. I'm in seventh grade. Mazel to mommy and daddy. Hi, I'm Abby Chi. I'm in eighth grade, and Mazel Tov to my parents. Hi, I'm Tehila Rabanapur. I'm in eighth grade, and Mazel Tov, Mom, Dad. So, how does it feel to all of you that we're honoring your parents? I feel so proud and happy for them. I also feel very proud and happy for them that they were able to be honored. Uh, I think they deserve it, and yeah, they work hard, yeah. And it's exciting because they put so much work into it. Mm-hmm. What's something special that you know, one of you could tell us about your parents. Maybe say who you are before you speak so everyone knows. So, um, I'm Abby, and something special about my parents is that they really try very hard um, to do everything that they can for my family, and they also, um, and they're very supportive of everything that so they you do. So you see, like, that they make sacrifices for your yeah. family? Mm-hmm. I'm Aviva Shilowitz, um, and my don't think people know that my dad has another job, and, <laughs> he, and that he what the work that goes into editing all the pictures. Uh huh. So. And mommy, um, also she also um has lots of time. She first goes to work, and then she has to go home, and she has to. Um, like type up the things she needs to figure out who where everyone goes for the dinner mm-hmm. and do the spirit wear. So you see your parents doing a lot of things for the school and putting a lot of time into the school. Yes. yes. So what what's something else that people might not know about your parents? People also may not know that there's some consulting between the siblings here. Tila, <laughs> what's something people might not know about your parents? Um, something people might not know is that they they really are hardworking and they put a lot of time into their their work and they also put a lot of time into their children mm. and every child in my family is special and yeah. Everyone's like treated like yeah, they're special. Yeah, everyone's treated like yeah, amazing. Shilowitz team. Um, they push themselves to do all the work, even if they don't have to. Right. Um, and if, like, they, like, they do, they, like, write a lot, they type a lot, and they also have, and they they put up in a lot of effort and time. Mm-hmm. Into what for they do for the school. And what they do for the school. I, I think you're right. I think people don't know how much time things take and how much time, I mean, do people think that your dad, Ellie, works here? Yes, I think he tells me all the time that, like, on Instagram, kids will, like, write to him, is there snow day tomorrow? And he'll be like, I'm just a parent. I don't work here. so confused. Yeah. So, you know, what's something that all of you have learned from your parents? It sounds like you've, you've learned about hard work, 
But what's like something that they, they teach you, like they, they tell you about? Um, I definitely learned respect from my parents. Respect to, you know, grandparents, respect to like teachers and adults and also to treat others with like, uh-huh. you know, like respect. We have to learn and even if people aren't like you and they're different, uh-huh. it doesn't yeah, they're still like people. So uh-huh. everyone has a soul in fact. Everyone has that yeah, that spark, that yeah. Um, so I learned that everything that we do, like as like studying, like playing like say sports and stuff, you should always try your best mm. to like reach your goal. And they taught us to all be very goal driven. Goal driven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree with what Abby said. I think my parents are very into trying your best and trying your best. Time. Mm-hmm. I think my parents taught me to be very honest and to tell the truth. And all, like, yeah. That, well, that could be hard sometimes. You know that, I, I hear you. It's telling the truth sometimes is hard. And, and I find that people whose parents teach them that being honest is important have, have an easier time with it. So that's important. Um, so what volunteer work? do you see your, your parents doing, like, in the community? Um, so uh, my dad definitely donates money to more than one shul around Great Neck and stuff. And my mom also vol- volunteers to, like, help the shul set some stuff up, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they're very hardworking. Um, my dad, like, his shul is closing down, so he really tried his best to, like, keep it open for as long as possible and have like people still coming and mm-hmm. now like every weekend they would have like a kiddush at somebody's house on Shabbat. So we so, didn't give up on it. Yeah, so they still so they still have their mm-hmm. old community mm-hmm. like still together. I see my dad, he's always taking pictures for whoever <laughs> asks. No one even realized like even one picture it takes it could take like up to 15 minutes, he needs to first choose the picture mm-hmm. and color it. Mm-hmm. And, and like as she said, and as she said, um, he also like has some people when he comes in the hall, oh, it's the picture man. And, <laughs> and also when he goes on my, and mommy, she knows a lot of like the PTA stuff and, and she like does a lot, she like does a, she helps organize the things. Wait, is your father does. only a photographer? No. What else does he do? A lawyer. He's a lawyer? <laughs> so is that he's something... He's a pattern lawyer. So is that something not everyone knows? Yeah. They think he's a school photographer. He just learned something new. <laughs> yeah, he just learned something new. Um, so if, you, if I would say to you, what is an important value to your parents? Just an important value. What would you say? To honesty is my policy. Mommy always says that. Right, Sarah? Yeah. And I think they also always tell me to try hard and to give a hundred. They don't care if we had a test, if it's high or low. All they care is that we put in a hundred and one percent to work on what we're doing. So effort. Effort. Yeah, like Aviva said, like effort is really what they want us to mm-hmm. all do, mm-hmm. and they really try to do their best so that mm-hmm. me and my sisters can get the best educations, and we can. Just mm-hmm. grow up to be great. To be great people. Um, I think my parents, um, a very important value to them is, like, positivity and to be fun and funny. Mm-hmm. And I know that because sometimes my father comes home late from work and he's very tired and, you know, stressed. 
but he still like cracks jokes mm-hmm. and like makes us all laugh and stuff. He has like a simchat hachaim. Yeah. So these are all very important important values that you're growing up with: honesty and hard work. And Simchat HaChaim, I, I think, you know, we're fortunate to have your parents in our school community, and you are so lucky to have them as parents because of those values. So what do you think your parents want for you, like, in your life? Like, what do they want for you? I think they want growth, happiness. Can I say that? Yeah. Growth and happiness and... Successful. Oh, success. growth, <laughs> happiness, and success. Um, I think my parents want me to get good education and really be whatever we want to be whenever we're older, as long as we're always, like, mm-hmm. positive about it, mm-hmm. and they'll always support us with that. Um, my parents definitely want me to um, shine, and they want me to, um, to like, when I go, I'm going to high school soon, and they want me to make the right decisions and mm-hmm. be with the right crowd, and, mm-hmm. yeah. So I'm going to ask you like a real grown-up kind of question, okay? Why is Jewish education important to your parents? So my parents didn't grow up with the best Jewish education at all because they weren't here. Mm-hmm. So they really want me and my sis- and me and my sisters to be able to learn what they weren't able to mm. and to be religious because after they came here then they started to be more religious mm-hmm. and now they want us to really know things about our history about Jewish history does that resonate with anyone else here um yeah um my mom was religious my father was like eh but <laughs> but he was still had values in in where he was from he still carried values that he wants me to to take and also like my parents understand that um, everybody has a neshama inside. Everyone has a, their own soul. And my parents know that, like, I have a mission and my siblings have missions that, like, nobody else can accomplish. Mm-hmm. So they just want me to shine and work. Mm-hmm. So. is? So I think it's a little different for our parents. My parents grew up both with Jewish education. Uh-huh. And I think why it's so important to them is because they know that if there's no Jewish education, there's no future, mm-hmm. but I think my grandparents really, um, my grandparents really influenced that. M- my mom's mother was the PTA president mm-hmm. of North Shore, where my parents went, mm-hmm. my mom went, and she also now, she's working at the Jewish Education Project, Right. and my grandfather's also very involved, and for my dad's mother she became an educator at a very young age Mm -hmm. and my grandfather is also into education so we we have um you know we have four kids here and their parents are all being honored and it's interesting the different perspectives here right Mm -hmm. we have some people who saw their parents um be committed to jewish education and followed that as role models which we expect all of you to do right follow them and then we have um we have some kids here who their parents said you know what we want to give our kids something different. And it's so beautiful that we're all sitting here today um, honoring our parents. Is there anything anybody else wants to say to their parents or anything about their parents? Um, I think, like, they always, they're always encouraging. And I think they did, and they do great. And they don't, they're like, maybe they come to all my games. But they also, also have work to do. And they work a lot. And they, it's not like they have one, they don't have one job, I mean job, but they also put a lot of their time into the school also. Yeah. 
Yes, and but you still feel like they put you first, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I have a lot of siblings at Rokhsham, but, but my parents treat each sibling as special. I have a special needs sister, but I never feel that, that I don't get attention. Mm-hmm. I get the attention that I need to... It's a very mature thing to recognize. Yeah. Thank God. Thank God. Um, so I think my parents, like, they really, really always try and keep us all happy. Mm-hmm. But whatever we do, like, to still be committed. Right. But it's also very important to me that we still, like, they're my biggest role models. Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing that they're being honored. That's so I'm, beautiful. I know my parents are very humble, and they don't like when we go around <laughs> and praise them. And I know I see all the time where they'll say one thing, and they'll do a lot more than what they just say. Right. Like, my mom's just the PTA president, and what she could do could just stick to the PTA. But when she sees a problem, she feels Jumps in to advocate and mm-hmm. to reach out to an educator or whoever's mm-hmm. dealing with that issue. Mm-hmm. Like, so she, like, steps up. So I think the most the most proud moment for them is probably seeing all of you and they're probably all very proud of you um let's wish them all mazel tov mazel tov we hope to see everybody at our annual dinner this motzei shabbat to honor these very special uh parents um not only parents of the kids here but um, major contributors uh to our school community um with their time and effort and in the jewish community at large I've been trying to get Mr. Ed Fox to participate in our podcast, but I knew until the dinner was over that that was not going to be possible. So, Ed, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So, I know that you work on the non-educational parts of things, but I think it's important for us to get to know you a little bit and what your feelings are about Jewish education. How long have you been working in Jewish educational institutions? Well, since you... um provided me with the questions in advance. I was able to do the math, and I figured out <laughs> that uh, I've actually been in this field for 40 years. Wow. Wow. Where were you in all, those, in all that time? I started out in uh, 1979. I worked for six years at Yeshiva University. I left Yeshiva and went to the Mariah School in Englewood, New Jersey, uh, where I held a position very similar to the one I have here at, at uh, Hartorah, and I was there for 18 years. After that, I spent two years back at Yeshiva University in, in a special assignment that I had there. And uh, then I came to Yeshiva Haratorah, and I've been here now 13 years. Hmm. Wow, 13 years. So now that the dinner's over, we had this whole new format. What, how do you feel about how it went? I always like to judge um, accomplishments or successes or failures based upon the, the goals that are set. And uh, we had three goals um, that we wanted to accomplish for our dinner. And this is basically the same three goals every year. The goals are, number one, to provide an opportunity for the family, the Yeshiva Hartov family, that is, to be together in a relaxed atmosphere and just enjoy each other's company and to really to celebrate another successful year of, um, of Jewish education at Yeshiva Hartorah. That was goal number one. Goal number two was to pay tribute to individuals who have gone beyond the call of duty, far beyond the call of duty, in terms of their 
activism in our yeshiva and in the community in general. And uh, number three was to raise money for our scholarship fund. And I, and I believe that this year we were successful in all three of those, reaching all three of those goals. I think it was a, a very pleasant, fun, enjoyable evening. Um, the food was great. The entertainment was great. The venue was beautiful. So that's goal number one. Goal number two, uh, we pay tribute to individuals. Um, all of our honorees really have given so much to our yeshiva and to our community. And, um, and goal number three, we were successful in, in raising money for our scholarship fund, which allows us to, um, to help families who would not be able to send their children to yeshiva mm -hmm. without our, our financial support. Mm -hmm. So all in all, it was a great event. We were nervous, I have to say, a little bit about uh, changing the format. Um, but uh, because of the fact, among other reasons, but certainly because of the fact that we had such large numbers of people coming to this dinner, we had close to 900 people at that dinner. Mm -hmm. uh, it really was the only format that could work, and Baruch Hashem, it worked out very well. It seemed to me that people really enjoyed having the opportunity to talk to people who wouldn't necessarily be at their table. So that was something that people shared with me that they enjoyed also. Something that came out from the dinner, other than all of the goals that you listed, is it's, it's very clear that you and Rabbi Silverman have a, a very close and, and long relationship. When, when did you two first meet? Well, we first met actually when I was in college, um, <laughs> believe it or not, and uh, Rabbi Silverman was my dorm counselor for one year. He was uh, not Rabbi Silverman yet, he was studying to become Rabbi Silverman. He was in the Smicha program at YU, and I was, um, I don't know, I guess I was maybe a senior in college, and uh, we didn't really have that much to do with each other, but that was the first time that I met him. Our relationship grew when I began working at Mariah School in 1979, Rabbi Silverman had already been there for a good number of years. He was the assistant principal and I was uh, the executive director. And um, we worked very closely together there and because of our close working relationship and because um, I guess we just sort of clicked, our friendship grew from that point on and uh, really he became um, our, our family and, and he became one. and. Um, we spent a lot of quality time together. Uh, he has become uh, sort of like an uncle to my children and uh, I guess a great uncle to my grandchildren, Baruch Hashem. And um, I think we just uh, uh, enjoy each other's company and, uh, and gain from each other. So who are you going to carpool with next year? I don't know. I told Rabbi Menchel that when he finds someone to replace Rabbi Silverman, it should be someone from Teaneck. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, it didn't work out that way. <laughs> you if, were going through the resumes and, and pulling the the New Jersey right. ones. <laughs> right, but if anybody knows someone who'd like to work at Yeshiva Har Torah and keep my hours and, <laughs> and come from Teaneck, I would very appreciate it. So everyone, everyone, look. Let's network on that. Yeah. So since it is quite a drive for you, what what motivates you to work in a place like like YHT? You know, when you spend 10, 11, 12 hours a day doing something, you want it to be something that's, um, that is meaningful. And, um, and I find that my work here, as my work was at Mariah and at YU, um, there's an extra added dimension to, to the work that I do. And uh, it really, it gets me through the day. It's not always easy, mm -hmm. it's not always fun, but I always can tell myself, no matter what crazy thing I may be involved with, I always tell myself, I'm doing it so that Jewish children can get a Jewish edu education. 
and uh, and that really makes it all worthwhile for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is that is beautiful. It is you know there are many mundane parts to all of our jobs, but especially to yours, and to bring meaning to it you know, is important. And I know that you always tell me, look, I stay out of the education part of the things. That's your job. But, but, um, you have some experience as a, as a father. Um, you know, what, what advice do you have for parents today? You've raised, you've raised, uh, quite a few children. I've raised, uh, Baruch Hashem, four children. And, uh, somehow they all turned <laughs> out to be, uh, in my opinion, anyhow, and others share that opinion. They all turned out to be wonderful. In fact, Four, and my, all four of my children are also involved in uh, Chinuch in different ways. Wow. Um, so, and I see that as a tremendous accomplishment um, because I guess they saw the same values that I did in terms of uh, doing whatever type of work you do. But in terms of advice for parents, there are a couple of things that I think are very, very important. And I, probably the first one is that parents have to be role models. They have to live their lives the way they would want their children to live their lives. They have to display the values that they treasure and the values that they want their children to take on. Um, And secondly, I think it's very important that parents be consistent. The mother and the father must present an image to the children that is one. It doesn't mean that parents always necessarily agree 100% on everything, but they have to um, give the... They have to present themselves as being of one. And uh, parents have to know that the answer can't always be yes to children. You can, love your, you can love your children and still say no sometimes. You have to set limits for the children and make sure that they understand that there are certain things that just don't fly. Mm-hmm. Well, setting those limits is actually a way of showing them that you love them. And kids without limits certainly crave those limits. Right, so, and at some 100%. point, maybe later in their life, they'll realize that the reason that parents were saying no is because they love them. Mm-hmm. That's true. They may not realize it at the moment. It may be difficult for them to accept that no answer, but um, in the end, they'll realize, they'll understand that it was all for the good. And I guess I guess we can take your advice for it because you have some success stories. Uh, well, it mostly came from my wife, but I guess I have a little <laughs> bit to do with this. Perm's <laughs> <laughs> um, coming. Any, any fun plans? The funnest thing I can ever do is spend time with my grandchildren. And uh, although I won't be able to be with all of them because uh, some of them are not local, uh, we will be spending some quality time with, uh, with I guess, the six grandchildren that are, that are more or less local. So that's, uh, hopefully, they'll recognize me even though I'll be wearing a costume and hopefully I'll recognize them even though they'll be wearing a costume. And what's your costume going to be? Don't know yet. You're working on it. <laughs> You're working on it. Okay. <laughs> One year I shaved my beard off, but I don't know if I'm going to do that again. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds fun. <laughs> is, there, is there anything else you want to uh, share with our parents who are tuning in? Um, I think we've covered all the bases, actually. I, 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 would, um, I guess I should put a plug in. <laughs> it's you know, I, I, part of my job. <laughs> you have uh, an audience. I, do, I have a captive <laughs> audience here. And I, I guess I would first like to thank... Uh, the parents for all the support that they give to our yeshiva um, just on a day-to-day basis and in particular uh, you know helping to make the dinner a, a smashing success it was uh, it couldn't have been done without without the parents particularly uh, Huvi Cohen and Davidi Haskell who worked on the dinner and of course my favorite uh, 
colleague uh, Effie Straczynski. Um, I, I need to give a shout out to him as well. Um, but I would also just uh, end off by saying that, you know, we are in the middle of a capital campaign right now. Baruch Hashem, our school is growing and our facility is, has been outgrown and we are in the process of planning to uh, expand our facility so that we can not only provide space for all of the children that want to join us, but also to provide some additional facilities for those of us who are here already. And uh, we, we can't do it without uh, the funds to do it. So I'd mm -hmm. um, love to invite any parents who are interested to, uh, to join us. It's an exciting venture and um, looking forward to a successful conclusion to that in the near future. Okay, well, thank you, Mr. Fox, and thank you every day because you allow us to teach Torah to our Jewish children. Thank we you very much. wouldn't be able much. to do it without you. It's a pleasure working with you, Ms. Glatenik. Oh, thank you. Uh, just a reminder, everyone, print up your table talk for Parshat Vayikra, Parsh, um, Shabbat Parshat Zachor, and Shabbat Shalom. To prepare for Chag Purim, I was thinking, who at Har Torah is so full of simcha and shares that simcha with everyone. And the first person who came to mind was Morachani. Morachani, <laughs> thank you for joining us on our podcast today. Pleasure. Very excited to be here. Okay. Well, how long have you been spreading uh, simcha in kindergarten at Yeshiva HaTorah? I think about 18 years. Hi. 18, 18 years. Yeah. Wow. And before that, you taught how many years? About 17 years. Ooh. That's a lot of kindergarten. I love kindergarten. <laughs> what, what is your most favorite part? of your job as a kindergarten mora? So two things. First of all, I love when I see the children internalize a lesson that I've taught them and see them act on that lesson. And when I teach Parsha and the Hanukkah story and the Purim story, you could hear a pin drop in the room. They're very excited and very involved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what is a special way that you've been getting them excited about Purim? So, first of all, every day we uh, take a trip to Shushan in our room, <laughs> and we take out the globe, and we show them how we're traveling halfway across the world, and we tell it very dramatically with songs and puppets, and... The, how do you travel to Shushan with them? Uh, by fastening our seatbelt, <laughs> and we get one child who's sitting quietly to close the light, and while the lights are closed, we're in Shushan, and as soon as we have to get back and do our work, we open the light, and we are... Right back in uh, Yeshiva Hartor. There we are, back in Queens. That's a fast flight. <laughs> okay, sounds like fun. It so, is, it is. speaking of Purim, it's like it's a mitzvah and Adar to be happy. And it's always struck me as a little interesting to have like a mitzvah and a feeling. Like, what, what is true happiness to you? So, I think true happiness is just being happy with what you have. If you ever pass by my classroom, you'll see a sign that says, If we just had the things that we thanked Hashem for today when we woke up tomorrow morning, what would you have? You have to thank Hashem every day for your children, for your health, for just being able to wake up in the morning and being able to get up out of bed mm -hmm. and just being able to come to Yeshiva HaTorah. And that's what happiness is. Yes. Appreciating what you have. Um, all right. How do you teach that? How do you teach that to your, to your students? How do I teach? About being happy and appreciating what they have. Um, well, we talk about all the time, HaKarat HaTov. Um, sometimes, for instance, we'll look around the building and see who does things for us, and we'll think nice. of how we can, when we make extra cupcakes or something, we gave to Tom, and we gave to Danny, we gave to Ernie, mm -hmm. we ran out to the office and gave everybody something in the office. <laughs> the children nice. had a great time, and we said we always have to be thankful for what we have. Mm -hmm. Which I guess leads us into our next question. This year in our, in our Midot program up here on this floor, we're learning about um, having empathy. 
Is that something you talk about in kindergarten? Well, not just this year, but we always talk about being empathetic in uh, kindergarten. Um, we tell the children like to look around and, and see other people in the world, watch their facial expressions, watch their body language. You can see how a person feels, by the way. Is their head held up high? Mm. Are they facing down? Are they frowning? Are they sitting with their hands to themselves? Are they just, you know, not in a good mood? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we tell children people need their own space and leave them alone for a little bit. And sometimes we go over and try and, you know, help them when they're not in such a good mood. So um, using the body, having children be in tune to body language of other people. So when you say something, like what face did that person have? Right. Or even Was looking at smile? your friend when you're having um, a problem with them. You know, are they crying? Did you make them sad? Mm -hmm. How do you think you can make them feel better? Mm -hmm. Well, so, how yeah. do you make them feel better? So kind of like kids have to be, um, uh, there are consequences to your actions. Like if somebody hurts somebody, we go over to them and say, how can we make you feel better? Mm -hmm. Did you get hurt? Can we get you ice? And then the person who hurt them will go to the freezer and get the ice. You know, mm -hmm. kids have to know that there are consequences to their actions. If you do something, you have to make it better. Mm -hmm. And what advice do you have like for parents to teach empathy at home? Like how would you extend that? What okay. we're doing here in school at home. So in the world around you, when you're walking, if you see a poor person, you know, asking for tzedakah, whether they're Jewish or not doesn't really make such a difference. You have to just stop and you can even talk to your child. What do you think we can do to help them? Mm -hmm. Giving them a dollar, um, going to uh, somebody's house. I always tell the children, is there somebody on your block who you could bring Mishloach Manot to who might not get so many Mishloach mm -hmm. Manot, you know, like an older person. We just try and think about people around us that could use our help. If you hear bad news, you know, then something happens in Israel. Don't just like say, can you pass the salt? Right. But how about sitting down for a minute and saying to Hillen with your, your children? Like Until extending beyond beyond yourself. Right, like we, we take our Tadaka program in our class, mm -hmm. and when our Tadaka box is full and we use it for math, we sort and we estimate how much money is inside, then we say, let's think about the world around us. We talk about current events all the time. Mm -hmm. Who do you think can use the money? And the children vote on where our money goes. Mm -hmm. Last time we sent it to our Chayal that we um, mm -hmm. adopted in Eretz Yisrael, and, and he got some money, and he got a package with things, and he nice. sent us back... Uh, you know, um, mm -hmm. an email saying he really appreciated it. You you say to Hillam with your students a lot. Yes. So I'll tell you why. <laughs> Many years ago, I live across the street from like Queens 1, mm -hmm. Hatzala. Mm -hmm. um, and years ago, they said that if you see a Tehil, um, an ambulance passing by, if you could just stop for one minute and say to Hillam for the person that's inside, because obviously someone is sick inside. I took that very to heart. I told my children at home. Every time we hear an ambulance, which we hear often because we live across the street from Hatzala, we stop and we say to him. So I taught that to my children. It is my students, who are my children also. True. It is the cutest thing to watch them as they scrunch up their eyes and they say to him because I taught them a to like uh, I think it's two psukim of Tehillim. And I tell them I'm giving you the best gift anybody can ever give you if you're ever afraid or alone or. Not sure. Hashem is always listening, and Tehillim is the best way that you could just um, mm -hmm. say what you need to say. And I have seen the children stop. In fact, this past week, twice, one day I was sitting um, on Shulchan Aleph, and a little girl was sitting next to me, and all of a sudden she said Tehillim, and I said, Leo, why are you saying Tehillim? <laughs> she said, for my friend Ayal, I said, Ayal, what's the matter? He said, I have a cold. <laughs> so they took it and down. just today, there were two children, children sitting in the library, and they ran to me. They said, we heard something. It sounded like a siren. I said, wow, guys, you should say to Hillam. They said, we already did. <laughs> so they've, they've really internalized. They really do. What, yeah, what you're nice. teaching them. So, you know, we talk about this a lot in general as educators, but what, what challenges do you see parents facing today? And, and how can we help them? <sighs> Such a good question. <laughs> 
So I feel like the environment that we live in fosters a sense of entitlement. Mm -hmm. I think always showing the children to see somebody else's point of view by looking at their, um, again, again, looking at their mm -hmm. expression, facial expressions, or, or seeing what we can do for other people is a very important thing. When we do, um, when we learn about Hanukkah, I say to the children, you're all going to be getting so many presents and so many great things, but if you got Hanukkah gelt, what do you think maybe you could buy for somebody else? Mm -hmm. And they think about it. I said, I want, to, I want you really to think about this for a few minutes. So close your eyes and visualize who might really feel good if you give them something. Mm -hmm. And we get answers like um, a Wii for my cousin or uh, an mm -hmm. Xbox for my, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's very cute. They're really just thinking about other people. And what they would want or need. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Parm's coming up. Do you have any, uh, any plans? Yes, I plan to give out a lot of Mishloach Manot, <laughs> hear the Megillah twice, give Matanot Levionim, and have a Sa'uda in my house where my children are coming. And the mm -hmm. fun thing about my children is they take the mitzvah of drinking just to the right point. They drink a little bit to free themselves up a little bit, and they dance to the music, and it is like my nachat watching them enjoy the holiday with the family and yeah. just, you know, dancing. Mm-hmm. And anybody is invited to my house in Kew Gardens, you can see the wonderful dancing because it's really a lot of fun. Should we put your address maybe you on the can, podcast you can. so people, <laughs> people you can, can know? So <laughs> kindergarten is really the foundation for everything we teach children here. Um, and don't they say that everything you need to learn, you really learn in kindergarten? It's so true. It's really true. What kind of world would we live in if everybody looked at everyone's oh. facial expressions as they're talking and said, oh, I wonder how they're feeling. Um, is there anything else you want to share with our parents before uh, we sign off? So speaking as a teacher, a mother, and a grandmother at this point, mm -hmm. love your children. I tell my children all the time, even my married ones, how much I love them. Hang up on the phone, I say, I love you, have a great day. Appreciate every moment that you have with them because they grow up so fast. Mm -hmm. So just they hug do. them and hold them close. They do, and you miss them sometimes, I'm sure. Yep. <laughs> all right, thank you, Morchani. My pleasure. Chag Purim Sameach. Chag Purim Sameach. Shabbat Shalom to everybody. Parsha Shmini gives us a lot of details about what we can and cannot eat and the laws of kashrut. So I thought that it would be a perfect opportunity for us to speak to Bracha from the kitchen. Bracha, thank you for joining us on our podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and I'm so excited to be in YHT. Okay, great. Well, <laughs> what do you like about working at YHT? I love the family feel and I feel like the faculty is so warm and inviting. I love getting to know the kids, mm -hmm. getting to know what they like to eat, what they're doing in their day, what they want to complain about, what they <laughs> want, not want to. So when we say YHT family, so yeah. that's true? Yes, definitely. <laughs> okay, I good. I definitely felt it the minute I walked in the door. Okay, that's great. And you're an important part of that because when you feed children, you develop a relationship with them. So it seems like that's something that happens for you. Yeah, definitely. I'll sometimes even have kids come as a reward to the kitchen to help me. Um, if they behaved in class or mm -hmm. they had a system going. That's good. Help. I always like it when kids are connected to where their food comes from or how much effort goes into preparing food. You know, they live in a time where there's a lot of easy access food and there's a lot of takeout food and it's it's good for kids to see how food's prepared and how long it takes and what the ingredients are. So that's great. I'm glad that happens in school too. So tell us about like your day at YHT. What, what time do you start here? I start, fun fact, I'm the first person in the building and <laughs> I start at 6.45. I open the building, I put the code in, 
Um, I, my day starts with putting all the food from the fridges into the warmers, and then I put up a pot of water for the pasta. As that's going on, I prepare the salad bar. I always like to add in mixed salads and mm -hmm. have fun with all the toppings. Mm -hmm. um, I try and make as many fresh toppings as possible. Yeah, so, you know, you've really focused a lot on making the lunch healthier. So what are some things you've done to Def help us, you know, in terms of eating more healthy here? Yeah, definitely. Um, I always try and make the menu um, balanced. Mm -hmm. Every meal has a protein, a vegetable, and a carb. Um, the salad bar is always much more fresh than canned. Mm -hmm. um, I always try and get new and exciting seasonal vegetables, mm. fruits, make it more exciting for the kids. It changes things up every month. The kids love the salad bar. They do. I, I see them piling stuff on their plates. Um, do you see it changing how they eat it all? Or Definitely. I've had parents come in and ask me that about different things that I've served and they say that their kid comes home after lunch trying something new and they request it at home. I even had a parent come in after I had served kiwis for the first time or grapefruit for the first time and they're like my kid came home and said they wanted that and I never have it at home and I was very excited. So for asked. the record the children like the vegetables. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> okay good what's your favorite lunch? My favorite is taco day. I love making the salad bar fun and exciting and tons of different colors and I make my own pickled jalapenos for yeah. it. The kids love it. The kids love those jalapenos. Yes. They have contests. Are you ever a little nervous when you put out something new? Like, are they going to like it? Are they not? Always. I'm always nervous. But, <laughs> but they I surprise us, right? always got surprised and always, it's usually a positive surprise. <laughs> but that's good, though, because if you don't try something new and if the kids don't go out on a limb, do you push them to try things? Definitely. Okay. Sometimes kids will ask me what something is and they won't be familiar with it and I'll say, you could try it. If you don't like it, you don't mm -hmm. have to finish it, but mm -hmm. at least try it. Okay, so just Parsha related, um, how do like keeping the laws of Kashrut, how does that guide your day in an industrial kitchen? Like what's something you want to share with us about that? So it's a little more complicated in an uh, industrial kitchen because everything's not necessarily, like in your regular kitchen, you could have one sink, you could have one oven, you could um, and change it up in between hours and wash things down. And But in an industrial kitchen, everything's like very strictly separate because you don't know who's walking in. Everything has to be labeled. Every time I have someone new come in, I have to explain to them what mm -hmm. the difference is between dairy and meat. They have to ask me before touching Anything. different utensils, different sinks. There's a washing sink. There's a dairy sink. There's a meat sink. Everything's separate. Everything has to be like very very strict yeah okay and you're and you're in charge of keeping that in line yes well definitely. thank you we, we appreciate yes. that um so you've learned a lot about our students preferences and what they like or don't like what was like a fun lunch or time that you know you you did something that they like right. responded well so we actually for Purim we had a Persian lunch and the second that the menu went online <laughs> all the kids were knocking at my door and asking me what's it gonna be what like which dishes are you doing they were buzzing about it and I was hearing about it the whole entire month and they were so excited I heard so, you were playing Persian music in the kitchen yes I tried to make that lunch as authentic <laughs> as possible that's fantastic um, 
the Kubidat, uh, the Persian music. Yeah. They loved it. Oh, yeah. wow. Great. Yeah. So, you know, people say you are what you eat. Do you, uh, do you subscribe to that? Do you believe in that? Um, partially. I definitely think there's a correlation between what you put in your body um, and how you feel. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily think that carrots make your skin orange. Right. You know? Well, if you eat too many, but... you could get carotene, right? <laughs> so, yeah. like, do you have a favorite food memory? Because food and smell of food and taste of food, like, really stays in people's, like, memories. What's something you had growing up that was yeah. like? Growing up, my mother would make this amazing turkey neck soup. Um, that she would make a 16 quart pot, which is massive, on Thursday nights, and we would eat it for Shabbos, and um, we would eat it the rest of the week, like throughout the week, it was part of our dinner. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. And uh, do you make that now? Um, I make it for my family for Shabbos every week. Yeah, and do you eat it through the week? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're not a leftovers person? Not really. No, all right. Okay, is um what age kids come to help you in the kitchen sometimes? Um kindergarten comes a lot to help me. They'll come in and as a treat mm-hmm. from their teacher. Um it's like a reward system and I'll have them I'll explain to them what I'm doing. A lot of times I'll have them come at a time where I'm cutting fruit and I'll have them play a game with me. How many fruits can we get cut okay. and how however much time we have. Mm -hmm. Um, It's usually a short amount of time, so we try and race, Mm -hmm. and they love it. Are you comfortable sharing what your favorite lunch is? Um, Yes. Okay. I (laughs) I don't know. I didn't didn't know if you want to make the other lunches feel better. Yes, I actually, I love tacos. Yeah. Um, I think it's just, it's fun. Oh, okay. My favorite lunch (laughs) is the shawarma. I love the hummus. <laughs> the hummus, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, I want to thank you, Bracha, for feeding our children every single day. My pleasure. I know that it's uh, it's a big job, and it's an important part of the day, and what they eat carries them through the day, gives them energy. So thank you very much, and thanks for keeping our kitchen kosher. Uh, don't forget to print your table talk, and Shabbat Shalom. I have the privilege of sitting here with Mrs. Judy Leibowitz, the Vice President of SIGE, the Center for Initiatives in Jewish Education. Um, I'm here today to learn about a very important program um, called the Eyewitness Program, um, which we'll hear more about from Judy. But I just want to thank you for joining us um, on our podcast. My pleasure. So uh, tell us about your role here at SIGE. I have the privilege of sitting here today with Mrs. Judy Leibowitz, the Vice President of SIGE, the Center for Initiatives in Jewish Education. I'm here today to learn about a very important program called the Eyewitness Program about uh, Holocaust education for children. And um, I'd like to let everybody in our parent body know about it. So, Judy, thank you for uh, joining us on our podcast. Oh, so it's my pleasure to be speaking to you this morning, and it's great to have met you. Uh, I really have been here for about 14 years. Prior to that, I was the general studies principal at uh, another Jewish school in Queens. And I was really given the challenge of trying to help the Jewish day school world 
really improve, enhance, complement the general studies education in Jewish schools throughout the New York City, New Jersey metropolitan area, which now really has become the whole United States. So what, uh, what kind of programs do you have going on in schools? Okay, so we have programs starting in lower school, which I think are uh, present in Hartford also. And we have success maker, computer assisted learning programs, Hebrew language programs. Mm-hmm. And then we really sort of advanced. And for the past, I'd say about eight years, we really entered the world of STEM, science, mm-hmm. technology, engineering, and mathematics. Mm-hmm. We first created a high school program, and now we have a middle school program. We have some supplementary programs for lower school also. We have over 10,000 students in our wow. STEM programs in schools throughout the United States, mm-hmm. from Seattle to California mm-hmm. to Florida to New York, mm-hmm. and all types of schools. And that's the future. That's STEM the future. is the future. That's education. Well, we appreciate all your efforts on behalf of bringing this current uh, form of education to all of our schools. So tell us about the, the Eyewitness Initiative and, and what prompted um, you to take it on. Okay. Well, we were doing a lot of science, math, general studies, and it sort of we went around and asked schools, what do you need? What do you want? And having been a principal for many years and also being a child of two Holocaust survivors, I realized that it's not only my own children, but it's children throughout the schools, in all the schools, that really are lacking an awareness of what happened in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. For me personally, my parents didn't want to make my brother and myself sad, so we'd never heard really the sad stories. Mm -hmm. As we got older and we were more mature, they did share some stories with us. But I really felt that in our yeshiva world, uh, students are learning a lot about American history, European history, and really they don't know what happened? They know there was a Holocaust. We have Yom HaShoah. We put on six yardside candles in our hallways. But what do they know? Mm-hmm. And um, Saige, together with the Shoah Foundation, partnered. And it's a very different type of program. They're not just reading materials or looking at pictures. They're actually meeting mm-hmm. virtually with survivors' testimonies mm-hmm. and it's been really divided in such a way. Our staff, we have a wonderful person who's been partnering with the Shoah Foundation, Fagy Rabbits. Mm-hmm. They together have developed a program where the children are learning about different topics mm-hmm. through the survivors' mouths mm-hmm. and through their testimonies. And it was divided among different types of topics. Mm-hmm. There's religion, there's growing up, there's friendship. And what we are now doing uh, today in the workshop, yeah. Today at yeah. the workshop, uh, what the princ- what the teachers or principals were shown really is how you can really put this program into your school, make it interesting, mm-hmm. arouse the kids' curiosity, and teach them so it's not just another topic. Right. And I'm it was so proud that fabulous had- workshop. Oh, it was a fabulous you. workshop, and the whole time I was thinking about different places in our current curriculum that we could embed it and the, where the videos can go in and the lesson plans. It's something that, you know, a principal or a teacher came to this workshop and can walk away and say, okay, this is how I'm going to use it it's tomorrow It's extremely teacher-friendly. It's totally extremely ready. student-friendly. Mm-hmm. And I think because the program is really being taught by the survivors 
it will really have a lasting impact on the kids. Mm -hmm. So it's everything. There are so many different topics mm -hmm. and the teachers will be able to use it. And I really think it's going to really change the future in terms of addressing the need mm -hmm. of our students, our children, our grandchildren learning about the Holocaust. Absolutely. So this morning, I am... We were, Faggy Rabbits did a fabulous job, and we love when she comes to visit us at Hard Torah. Right, um, Faggy has tell developed, I tell them, we, yeah. she is our teacher, our consultant, and she visits schools all the time right. for I tell them. Mm -hmm. We have our mentors who go for Success Maker, mm -hmm. our mentors who go for all our STEM programs, and it's great that mm -hmm. we're partnering with Hard Torah. Right. I have the utmost respect for Rabbi <laughs> Michelle, yes. who is a great principal. <laughs> he's fantastic. And he's interested in always bringing innovative programming into Hard right. Torah. No, absolutely. And and some of the units that Faggy showed us um, were taking the eyewitness videos and tailoring them to Jewish schools. And I, you know, the units we saw about the Chagim and how holidays were kept in the camps and just the spiritual resistance that survivors had, I think is really something that's going to impact our students. So I really look forward to bringing that to Hartora. Um, speaking about Jewish education in general, what, what do you see as some of the greatest challenges in, in our field today? Okay, so really many of the challenges were there when I was principal 15 years ago, and they're still there acquiring teachers, capable teachers mm -hmm. who are dedicated to teaching is really the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. And as time goes on with new subjects being taught, mm -hmm. uh, for example, in the STEM area, mm -hmm. someone who's an engineer, it's gonna be hard for them, they're not gonna leave engineering to come and be a teacher right. in a Jewish day school. Mm -hmm. So we have science teachers who we train. One of the most important things that we do here at SIGE is we make sure to have mentors who go mm -hmm. into the schools and then we train the teachers. Mm -hmm. So the difficulty of finding good teachers who are willing to spend that extra time and not come home and then the next day I don't do anything at home because mm -hmm. I'm sure you as a principal have mm -hmm. heard it and I have heard it. Right. And that is a very big challenge that they don't exist and unfortunately more and more families need more money right. and being a half day teacher, even a full day teacher is not going to exactly. do it. Right. And that is a, a very, very big challenge. Mm -hmm. Getting challenged the teachers in the teachers. field. Yes. Right. Agreed. So you were principal for how many years? As a principal for 20 years. 20 years, wow. Are th I can tell you where. As a principal at YCQ, so now if everybody... It's out there. <laughs> it's out there, so I may have had some of you in my school, but That's it's great. out there. Um, so, do you miss being a principal? I love being a principal. I love being a mommy to 800 children, <laughs> and I see the kids. I, I do miss being with the kids, but I've been given an opportunity to really help so many more children. Mm -hmm. So instead of 800, mm -hmm. I can help 20,000. Right. Uh, so it, I, I do miss the kids, but I really get to see them a lot. They live yeah. in my neighborhood. That's great. And I get to see their children, their grandchildren. And as my child, my own children say, you know, mommy, thank God they liked you. If not, we would not be able to go out on the street where <laughs> yeah. we live. Yeah, that's hard being an administrator and parent. Right, right. Um, you know that. I do. I do. I do know that. Um, any any memories or stories as a principal? No, there are just so many. There's so but, many. Um, one of a great story was one kid in eighth grade, a boy who got into trouble and um, he came running into my office and he goes, mommy, mommy, I'm in such trouble. <laughs> and that's what happens when you know a kid from when they're four years old oh, until they, they're 14. Yeah. 
I said, I'm not your mommy, so I'm going to be a little bit angry, but I really can't yell because I'm not your mommy. But uh, he's very successful, and he's married. And it's fun to see them great. as adults, it's, and, and you know, everything you invested in them. The NASA's last forever, thank God. Oh, so it's so a nice. very rewarding field, mm-hmm. and what I do now is just to see these kids and they're starting to get older and a lot of them are going to different fields that they were introduced to because mm-hmm. of SIGE. And really, our center really, really aims at enhancing mm-hmm. the secular studies education. And you mentioned, you asked me about challenges. Another challenge is finding enough time in the day. It is hard in the yeshiva right, day. Uh, to teach everything yes. you want to teach. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult. Some schools don't have the funding to be able to do everything. Sage helps, you know, we do provide mm-hmm. uh, materials. But there are a lot of challenges, and I salute all the parents who are working with all the yeshivas and yes. salute you guys for sitting and listening <laughs> to a podcast right now. Yeah, no, our, we have, uh, thank God, a very engaged parent body, and we're very, we're very proud of it's that. It's great. It's great. Um, so one thing that we're working on as a school this year, parents and in school with the teachers is we're, we're working on empathy training with the children. Do you have any advice for In for terms us? of? Thinking about what it feels like to be in someone else's shoes or how they might feel if you say something right. to them. What, what advice right. do you have for parents or teachers? Mm-hmm. How do we teach this to children? It's not like it's a tangible thing. Modeling is really very important. Mm-hmm. As parents, children, you don't realize how much your children are watching what you're doing. Yeah. And I remember, and I'm thinking back, that like fourth grade girls was the hardest because they were so sensitive. And Mm -hmm. if a kid says, I'm not your friend anymore, that was it. Like ruin the day. And there's also the issue of devices now. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not talking to each other. And I know it's probably not, you're not allowed to have it in her Torah or you can't carry it with you. But then the problem is that feelings are starting to disappear as the devices are starting to appear. That's a very important reflection because children can write something to someone and not see the reaction on someone's face. And and that's something that we learn as we grow up. We say, oh, when I said that, that hurt someone's feelings. Here it's like it goes out into the abyss. I 100% I I see that too. We're taught as we grow up to always look into somebody's eyes when they're talking. So now forget about you can't look into the person's (laughs) eyes. You're looking into a device. Right. And you'll see that reaction. And it's very hard, but the teachers have to model it also. Mm -hmm. The teachers have to care about each child. Mm -hmm. And the whole issue of Chanoch, Lanar, Alpidarko, everybody can be educated. Right. And a teacher has to keep that pitgam in their head and say, okay, so this one I can teach differently. And it's hard. That's a challenge also in the classroom. Yes. Yes. Of addressing each person's needs. It is. It's very hard. We work very hard at it at Har Torah, but I will say it is definitely a challenge to, to see each child as their own person, even when there's 23 of them in a room, um, is definitely a challenge. So I know you had shared with me that you do have a, a real connection to this eyewitness program. What, what's your family connection to the Holocaust? Well, both my parents were Holocaust survivors. As a matter of fact, my mother lost 11 siblings right. and 33 nieces and nephews. Mm-hmm. And my father lost siblings, but he, um, and his parents, of course, but he ran away and he was doing papers for people. Mm-hmm. But we heard only good stories. Like I heard stories where my mother knew the davening by heart and mm-hmm. then she would, you know, say it out loud. And she would say the pasuk kiviti Hashem kivtanavshi and then we put that pasuk on her matseva. That's amazing. But I really, really, it's really for me. 
that Saige is doing this now, mm -hmm. and Fagi has worked very hard. Mm -hmm. the, the Shoah Foundation is working very hard partnering with us, and I really think it's important. We're now already three generations mm -hmm. after the Holocaust. We're talking about it 60 years. Right. It's, it's more unbelievable. than that. It's 70 years. It's unbelievable. And for all, for our children, for your children's, probably some great-grandparents also, but to think back and to think how successful you are and to think what they went through and how hard it was and they sent the kids to yeshiva and our generations Sacrifices, have continued. Right? I sometimes as an adult think, how did they still believe in Hashem Right. after that? And if somebody didn't, I, I can understand. But yet they sent us to yeshiva and they kept Shabbos and everything. And, and I remember um, my father, I don't remember when it happened, but he was saying he was open Sunday, closed Shabbos, and then the police would come right. and give him a ticket. Yeah. And, they had the, and things have changed, but I think it's important because it will give our children an identity. Mm -hmm. And they will understand. And now we do have Yom HaShoah, but, but what we really are promoting, what Saige is promoting, is that Holocaust can be studied within the confines of... Right other topics and right. other areas it should be embedded and if you're teaching world war ii not only to teach about normandy and this right. war and that war but teach mm -hmm. okay but this is what was going on in the small towns right no and those videos as i was as we were watching them i was thinking of units that that they can be embedded to i thought of one even in a, a gamara unit that we're doing um but i think you're right the connection to the survivors you know my father would describe how my grandfather would take four buses to work and he was a shochet and then he would come home and he would fall asleep on his safer. And that's right. where they would find him in the morning. And that, that sort of just total dedication. He was in the mirror right. before he was drafted into the army, um, the Russian army. So that sort of like, even under those circumstances, Torah was like the most important that thing. That was. Right. And, and our growing up religious and Baruch Hashem now having children who are religious. Right. That was a dream. Right. And like... Baruch Hashem, if your parents of our Torah kids, that dream was fulfilled. Right. No, Baruch Hashem. It's uh, it's something we are very fortunate, and um, I think I think you're right though that for Jewish identity, this mission of Saj to look back on these stories and 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 bring them to schools is very very important. Is there is there anything else you'd like to share with our parent no. body? No, just keep up supporting your children because they are the future. They are they the future? And the you have people. a wonderful school. I'm not going to give you a list of all the people to send regards to. <laughs> you can give shout outs to people. No, Cindy, Cindy Cotton, Cindy Rabbi Cotton. Michelle, <laughs> Vivian Rosenberg. All the, some of them are former YCQ people, but anyway, we're all friends and we're ultimately doing all the best all the we same can mission. for really for, to help our children and grandchildren and future generations. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and thank you for your work. It really impacts Jewish day schools in a very profound way. Wishing everybody a Shabbat Shalom and don't forget to print your table talk. Uh, we have a custom on Shabbat Hagadol to review the Haggadah and prepare for the Seder. So I thought it would be appropriate to uh, have Rabbi Minchel join our podcast again. Thank you for coming, Rabbi. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, we thought it would be good to have you here to help, to help us all prepare for the Seder. You know, sometimes in school, we as educators feel like parents. And I feel like the Seder is a time when our parents become educators for the evening. So... How do you connect with the Seder as an educator? The Seder is an incredible, incredible experience and an incredible opportunity to engage 
children, engage your children in an experience that is not just a learning experience, but potentially a transformational experience. You know, the, um, there's a pasuk in Parshat HaAzinu, Sha'al avicha v'yagedcha zikeinecha v'yomru lach. should ask your father or your parent, and he, will, he or she will tell you, your elders, and they will tell you. And the question is, what's the difference between what parents do and what elders do? And what's the change of the terminology, v'yagedcha lashon of hagada, as opposed to lashon of amira? They both mean to tell. And the Nitziv has a beautiful insight and shares that lahagid, the agedcha, is a certain type of engagement where you're not, no, you're not telling the children, you're not telling your children, but rather you're bringing them into an experience where there's a dialogue, there's a conversation, there's a back and forth, there's inquiry, there's open questioning, there's ex- exploration of ideas. And that one can do more readily with one pa- one's parents than with elders who are a little bit removed. And even though, hopefully, children have an opportunity to be with parents and grandparents, in some cases today, Baruch Hashem, with great-grandparents at their sedarim, ultimately, it's the parent-child connection that really brings the Haggadah to life and brings the experience to life. I'm always so excited because our children as they are preparing in school for the, the Pesach's Darim, they are so excited to share what they've learned. And that excitement is so, it's palpable. You know, I have the opportunity to interact with the kids in various ways before Pesach as well. And I, and I feel that excitement and they've learned so much, they've taken in so much and they've really, they really can't wait to share. And for parents, it's really just the opportunity to engage children, to make them feel comfortable, to just share what they've learned. They've learned so much. They have so much to give and so much to to um, relate. Our goal and our role as parents slash educators at the Seder is really to give our children that space, that opportunity for each one to shine. And that is something that I think stays with our children way beyond the Seder. You know, the answer to the Sheila of the Chacham, which is, Ein maftir in achara Pesach hafikoman. So what does that have to do with the question of the Chacham who's interested in understanding better? And the answer is, I saw a beautiful pshat of the Harav um, Sternbach in the Moadim Uzmanim, it's, it's Haggadah of Moadim Uzmanim. See, he says, the question of the Chacham is really, why do we prepare so much for just this one like week-long Seder, this week-long Pesach holiday, it seems to be so much preparation. First of all, there's the learning that you do. Sholem Vidarshim, 30 days before you start learning and preparing. And of course, we know the preparation of the house and the preparation for the Seder. There's so much that goes into it, and in a week, it's gone. Mm-hmm. That's the question of the Chacham. And the answer is, Ein maftir achara Pesach avikoman that you're not allowed in the days of the Korban Pesach, you couldn't eat anything after the Korban Pesach. Today, the Afikoman replaces the Korban Pesach, and so we don't eat anything after the Afikoman. Why? The reason is we want the Korban Pesach in the time of the Mikdash and the Afikoman of today to stay with you. We want that taste to stay with you. 
In other words, it's not about the week long of Pesach, but it's really the impact that Pesach has that goes way beyond the holiday itself. And for our kids, the buildup and the excitement and the enthusiasm that they have, if they have the right kind of experience at the Pesach Seder, then that excitement and enthusiasm is going to carry them beyond Pesach so that they are going to be elevated. They're going to be transformed. They'll take advantage even more of the learning opportunities that they have here at Yeshiva Torah, and they'll be elevated spiritually as well. Mm-hmm. So what advice do you have for parents about how to draw out some of this enthusiasm from their kids at the table? You know, people come to the Seder, they're sometimes tired, a lot goes into it. You know, how can we plan ahead for that? So one of the things to do is to, is of course, for the children themselves to be well-rested and to come to the Seder so that they can appreciate, so that they're not tired and they don't lose their stamina, that they can stay with it. And, um, and of course, there are things we do during the Seder. The Halakha even mentions that the reason for the, the question-answer process, which is, of course, an educational technique, that technique is meant to engage children. Because, let's face it, we as adults don't need that process the same way. But to engage the children, this is all about It's about engaging children. The whole purpose of the Seder, because if we really want Jewish values, Jewish life to be sustainable, we have to be able to transmit it in a powerful way Mm -hmm. to the next generation. I've always felt like the Seder is like the perfect lesson plan, since the parents are going to be teachers. You know, you start off, this is what we're going to do today, Kadesh, Orchatz, right. you tell them we're going to we start with aim. questions. Put your aim on the board, right. These are all our types of students that we're going to have. We do a few things that are like a hook. You know, we dip some things. We, right, you know, we, we do things some... differently, intentionally, to arouse the, the interest and the excitement of the mm-hmm. students, of the children. We, we give out, you know mentioned that we should give out different uh, they say nuts and, and uh, of course healthy candies. <laughs> well it's a special occasion. It's it would special, be a sometimes snack. Sometimes snack. <laughs> um, to keep the kids interested and to keep them involved because mm-hmm. it's hard to sustain your involvement in the entire Haggadah because it's long and it's, and, and it's not easy to engage children the entire time but if they have things to look forward to and if along the way we take breaks from mm. the, the formal saying of the Haggadah to engage the children, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, really, uh, mm-hmm. it's really powerful. That's like the most important part of the night, is getting to the kids. What, what Seder memories do you have, Rabbi, from growing up? So I have lots of wonderful memories. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was really leading the Seder from a young age. My parents were not yeshiva uh, trained. So when I started going to yeshiva and I came back uh, came to the Seder. So they, my, my father relied on me to really carry things. So, so I, I was in an interesting role from a, from a young age. Um, and I always looked forward to it. I always felt the responsibility to bring uh, interesting insights in Divrei Torah. And uh, of course, I wanted to impress my parents that their uh, yeshiva tuition dollars were going to good use. Um, those, are, those were very special you know, the Sdarim were always very special. But I will tell you one kind of comical um, memory that I have of a more recent times when I had my own family. We had the entire family together at the Seder. And I have a friend who lives in my community who uh, 
we, our, our sadarim typically go till about one thirty, two o'clock in the morning because we we try to um, to engage everyone and we try to give each section of the Haggadah its due. So this particular individual is a very, very learned person, uh, had finished somewhat earlier than we finished, and he and his wife were taking a walk, and um, he was still wearing his kittel from the, uh, from the Seder, and we got up to the point, literally got up to the point, where you open the door for <laughs> Eliyahu Hanavi, and at that moment, he appeared. <laughs> And my family went like crazy. The timing was just so coincidental, more than coincidence. It was obviously, we thought, we thought Eliyahu Anavi was at our door. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and there he was. And there he was. There he, there he was. was. There you go. So I guess as a teacher, thinking about the four children is, is always an interesting part of the Seder for us. I've, I've learned in, that, it, that the reason the Chacham is listed with an answer is because you have to really plan for those students who need to be challenged and think, and if you don't, they're going to lose interest in Torah. I always struggle with the, the Russia. What, what do you have? What thoughts do you have about that, Rabbi? So first, I just on a, a comment on the Chacham. It's interesting. It should be that there's a counterpart, Chacham and Rasha, but Chacham and Rasha are not counterparts. It would have been, or it should have been, Tzaddik and Rasha. Mm. So why is it Chacham? Because it's not necessarily an individual who is fully there. They still need, in terms of their strengthening of their emunah, strengthening of their experience, is still incumbent upon us, even though they're very intelligent and insightful, and they ask good questions. We should realize that asking those good questions, we really have to answer those questions well. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't assume that a chacham is there. Right. We have to help the Chacham and challenge the Chacham and give the Chacham things to think about and to, to, feel, to feel fully mm-hmm. part of things. Mm-hmm. The Rasha is an interesting one. The, there are many commentaries who say, um, are we really dealing with a Rasha, a wicked person? Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, you know, there's an introduction to the Arba Banim of Baruch HaMakom Baruch Hu, Baruch Shanat Antarli Amo Yisrael Baruch Hu. Four times it says Baruch, the word Baruch, and each one of those brachot is connected, one of those is, is, is paired up with one of those children. Even the Rasha, because the Rasha is also a Ben of Hashem. Uh-huh. Even the Rasha, we shouldn't think that a wicked person, we're not talking about wickedness, we're talking about maybe people who appear, who outwardly, they look like they're, they've given up. They look like they're uninterested, they're mm-hmm. apathetic. Okay. And those individuals are reachable. Mm-hmm. We have to penetrate sometimes mm-hmm. a little harder mm-hmm. to get to them, mm-hmm. to reach them. But we shouldn't think, first of all, we have no children who are Rishayim. There are no Rishayim. They are sometimes feeling distanced. They're feeling dejected. Mm-hmm. They're feeling um, that they don't really understand what their role is. Mm-hmm. And so we have to work a little harder on the, for those children, those types of students. Mm-hmm. But they're definitely reachable and certainly never to give up on them. Mm-hmm. The only reason the Rasha is dealt with, in, according yeah, to some commentaries, yeah. in such a harsh way... Can we take is, that not literally? Can we say it's to answer sharp or to stop them from certainly, what they're saying? Certainly not to be taken literally. Okay. To be taken in a way that... 
child should never think that we don't have emunah in Hashem. Mm-hmm. And the Rasha suggests uh-huh. that there isn't emunah. And even in the worst time, when the Jewish people were in their worst state in Egypt, they maintained a connection to Hashem mm-hmm. because ultimately they cried out to Hashem and that's what really led, led Hashem to listen to them because they, they had to cry. Mm-hmm. They had to turn to Hashem. Mm-hmm. So that Rasha, we have to really send a strong message mm-hmm. to him at the same time that we're trying to reach out to him and bring Hashem him closer. Hashem didn't forget about us. Hashem didn't forget about us. So and Hashem doesn't forget about him. So. And he is still a ben Hashem. He's a ben, he's, he's a banim atem Hashem. He's still right. a child of Hashem. And we have to view, view him in that way as well. Also, he's, he's, a, he's asking, this child is asking a question. You know, Rabbi Riskin, I think it's Rabbi Riskin, has a, a famous piece about, you know, there's there's a fifth child, and that child didn't come to the Seder. Right. So yeah, this one at least is there. This one's He's there and wants to engage and, and wants to know what's going on. I think it's a very important lesson to us as educators and parents as well. And that is that we shouldn't put off by, be put off by questions, even difficult questions, even questions that border on, almost borders on disrespect. We still have to realize where is it coming from? Mm-hmm. It's coming from a place where there's something within that one asking the question right. that needs to be reached out to, that needs to be connected to. And so we should take the the child who is mm-hmm. somewhat distanced and somewhat even disrespectful in their questions, we should take that as a challenge for us. Mm-hmm. How as educators, how as parents, we never, God forbid, never give up mm-hmm. on that child. I think that's even more important today because, and I mean, you've been in education much longer than me, but I feel like children today, even in our own home, can be connected to things outside the home, either on their phone or, you know, social media and, and keeping the lines of communication open, even with adolescents who are sharp or difficult, I think is even more important today. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Lines of communication are ultimately, that's going to preserve the continuity of our people. And that's the Sha'ala Never be put off by questions. Mm-hmm. If you don't have answers, that's okay. You can say, I don't know, and, and look into it further. Mm-hmm. We don't all have answers. Mm-hmm. We don't always have answers. However, we should always be listening and always validate the questions that, that, that were asked. What bracha do you have to the, to the uh, Yeshiva HaTorah family coming to Pesach? I would say that this this experience, this family experience of parents, grandparents, and children coming together is really the proudest time for our yeshiva, for our families, for our people. It's really an opportunity that should be maximized. And it takes thought, and it takes preparation. My bracha is simply that our children should have the enthusiasm, should have the excitement, that we see here when they're learning about the Haggadah and learning about Pesach, they should have the, the capacity to, to express that mm-hmm. and to be celebrated for all that they have accomplished. And at the same time, I give a brachat to our wonderful, wonderful teachers who dedicate themselves so much during this time. This is a difficult time for everyone. We're all preparing, preparing personally, we're preparing physically, we're preparing our homes and our families. And at the same time, we're preparing our students. And so 
My bracha is that as a, as a Yeshiva HaTorah family, as a, as a Yeshiva HaTorah community, we should use this Pesach opportunity to grow, to grow in our bonds with our children and our connection to our children because ultimately that's the connection that our children have to the Misora, the connection that they have to our heritage. And Amir Tzashem, the children should be a tremendous source of nachat to our wonderful parents and grandparents and hopefully even great-grandparents. L'shana habab Yerushalayim. We hope, Amir Tzashem, that we can hasten the Geula because of our experience during this Pesach holiday. Thank you, Rabbi. Wishing everyone a Chakasher V'Sameach. And don't forget to print up your table talk this week. Um, it's connected to our theme of empathy um, and ha- will help you prepare for the Seder as you go through the Haggadah. Shabbat Shalom. Welcome back to everybody from our Pesach break. Um, as we are approaching Yom HaShoah, it's the beginning of the week here, um, we're thinking about how we address Holocaust and Holocaust education in our school. Uh, joining us today is uh, Mara Rachelea Middleman, who in addition to being a mechanechet for sixth and eighth grade girls, also coordinates a very special program we have called Names Not Numbers with our eighth graders, and I'd like everyone to learn a little bit about it. Hi, Mara Middleman. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me on the show. So tell us a little bit about the Names Not Numbers program. So the Names Not Numbers program is a program where our eighth grade students are able to interview a Holocaust survivor and learn how to film it, and they learn how to interview, um, and they learn how to create a film, and it's a really, really meaningful, meaningful program. So, like, what are the steps that happen? So, walk us through a little bit of it. Okay, so the first thing we do is we learn about the history of the Holocaust. So, when Hitler came into power, um, the different concentration camps, the ghettos, the liberation, things like that. Um, we go on a trip as an eighth, with the entire eighth grade to the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, each group is, serv- is assigned a survivor, and they get their bio. I speak to each, one, each survivor on the phone, and they get their basic information, like when they were born, what cities they lived in, and where they were during the war. Mm-hmm. And then th- from there, they do research, and they find out about the town. They, they do research on so the So in internet. each of their groups, they have one survivor. They research, like pieces of their story even before they even meet the person. Right. This is okay. before. We work months in advance. Wow. Yes. Okay. And then they come up with questions. So they craft questions based on their story mm-hmm. and we want to elicit responses. Mm-hmm. So the better the questions are, the better responses we're going to get. So we encourage the students not to nice. do any, not to create any yes or no questions. Right. It's more of describe to me, mm-hmm. you know, what was it like in the concentration camp, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then we edit the questions a few times. All right, until, that's good to be reflective first. Um, yeah, until they're ready to go. And then we have interview week. That's the big week where the survivor comes to the school to be interviewed and filmed. By the whole group. And then they're filmed. And then what do they do to prepare for like the filming techniques and so stuff? So they have someone come to teach them about the filming techniques. Mm-hmm. How to use the camera, the audio, the visual. Mm-hmm. The different angles of a camera. So there's a lot of skills that go into this. Yes. Recording a history, there's some media pieces, there's some interview skills. Right. So it's really like a rich experience for yes. the students. Okay. Well, how have you seen this program affect our students? So this program affects our students in ways that I couldn't even imagine. Um, the way they are able to meet a survivor firsthand. Many of students have not done so beforehand. Wow. Unless they have family members, you mm-hmm. know, who've, who've gone through the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, 
how do they respond, the students? How do they seem like when they... So it's really nice. Each group really ends up connecting with their survivor. It's really nice because they've been involved with their story, then Mm -hmm. they meet them, and it's it's kind of like a a year-long relationship with the survivor, and Mm -hmm. it's very, very meaningful. So it it is very special. I haven't been part of the process, but I usually come to the culminating dinner, and I see the students sitting with the survivor, each of them that they interviewed, and they you can see that connection. Definitely, so it's, it's like special. it's almost as if the survivor is their hero. You know, the right. way they walk with them, the way mm-hmm. they look at them. It's well, it's they like are admi- heroes, right? They yeah. are. They're it's all beautiful. They have admiration. It's, yeah, it's very nice. What's like a special moment? From the program that so I would say is the culminating event like you mentioned dinner. it's just that dinner where you all the survivors come together at mm-hmm. once and we watch the film together mm-hmm. it's the first time anyone sees it it's the first time we is that that After. dinner they the kids hadn't seen it the right. survivors had it and that's like the moment it's the moment mm-hmm and it's cute even to watch the survivors watching themselves on the film. I mean, we had one survivor last year. He was taking pictures of himself on the screen. <laughs> it was so, so cute. So it's interesting. It's, so they, they the also families, feel their families, their families come and they, they feel special about it too. We get such amazing feedback. I just have to add from their families. They're all so impressed with their school and the way the students behave. And I, I can't even tell you the feedback that we get it from the families That's of amazing. the survivors. I can imagine. So, on a personal note, how has running the Names Not Numbers program impacted you as an educator, as a Jew? So, the way that it impacted me was, I would say, the connection I have with my students during the process, you know, especially during interview week. Mm -hmm. We're sitting there all together in the room. It's just us, the survivor, and the filmmakers, and it's quiet, and we're all zoned in Mm -hmm. to listen to their story, and many times we start crying in the middle. It just and you come you help comfort the students and the no we're each in our own everybody's in there everybody's in their own we're taking it in in different ways mm-hmm. you know some things impact students in you know in different ways and it does with adults right yeah or yeah mm-hmm. the adults the students mm-hmm. what do you think is like the single most important lesson that our students should walk away from from doing this names not numbers experience that they have so I really think it's just just um, connecting to our Jewish heritage mm-hmm. and having a strong sense of who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, every Holocaust survivor, when we ask them at the end, what's your message to our generation? It's always about Am Yisrael Chai and wow. never forget who you are, wow. whether they're religious or not. Mm-hmm. Jewish identity is so, so important, and it's important that we just don't forget who we are, where we came from, and just to take that with us wherever we go in life. I think an important element that you mentioned is it's important to learn the story and what happened during the Holocaust, but some of the pieces that come out is also what life was like before and some of the lost communities and the world that was lost um, from the Holocaust, I think is also just so important for our students to connect with. So yeah, definitely. that's a nice, that's a nice element of the program. Um, has Holocaust education evolved any bit since you were in school or what do you see as different now? So, as a child, I didn't have the Names That Numbers program in my school, but I was definitely very knowledgeable. I, you know, I've been to the Yad Vashem Museum, um, and my, I have family members who've been through the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. I would say the one way that it evolved was probably just t- with technology. The mm-hmm. more technology we have, the more we're able to spread. This whole media piece. Media piece, right. right. Interesting. Filming and... Mm-hmm. I think there's like an urgency to grab those stories. So... 
talk a little bit about your family. You know, you said you have some, you mentioned you have yeah, some Yeah, so a survivors. lot of my, my mother's family um, went through the Holocaust. My grandmother and my great aunt survived Auschwitz, but unfortunately my grandmother was not well. Mm-hmm. And she was never able to return back to her, you know, fully, full functioning life after the war. Um, it really came back to haunt her. She wasn't able to raise her children. That's how much the, the war affected her. That's a tragedy. I mean, the whole thing's a tragedy. So my mom and her whole family someone. really were really, really affected. Mm-hmm. And she died young, unfortunately, also. Right. It was hard. It was hard. So I guess what are your hopes for our students after going through an experience like this? So the really most important thing it would be just to teach everybody how you met a survivor. You know, each student firsthand heard their story. They can't deny it. Mm -hmm. It was like the firsthand experience. The feeling of, yeah, people who, you know, there's people denying the Holocaust out there. And our students are able to combat that. Because they're... By meeting firsthand witnesses. I think they're going to be the last children generations right, right now are the ones who are going to have firsthand experience with survivors. So I, I think you're right about that. And as educators, we have to balance, you know, what's the, what's an age appropriate way to teach the Holocaust was a meaningful way. So what are some things you do in your classroom, you know, aside from this program that, that helps students connect? Yeah. So a lot of it is hard, you know, when in some schools, the program runs in high school. Mm-hmm. So eighth grade, I would say is the youngest that mm-hmm. we can have such a, yeah strong sort of program right and but how would you you know but just, i think there's just, ways in you know just to teach your students that there there were children who went through the war and how to connect and mm-hmm. show that there were similarities between right the way we are now and them and just mm-hmm. to make it kind of more mm-hmm. relatable mm-hmm. and like how to they make teach it not, not their to, to make it feel that it wasn't so long ago that it happened to make them understand that this this was recent and right it was like your family, and it was like right. your chad that this happened during. and Exactly. Mm-hmm. Connected to Chagim and just Jewish traditions. and. Mm-hmm. All right. Is there anything else you want to share with our parents about names on numbers, Holocaust education, anything? I think it's important that every student hears this firsthand from a survivor. So if someone doesn't have the opportunity to participate in names on numbers, they should really, I would say, make it, Make it their business to hear firsthand a story from a survivor. Mm-hmm. Make sure there's, there's that. nothing like hearing it straight from a survivor. Being able to ask them their questions, especially because seeing their face, there's yeah. not that many left of them, and right, it's you know scary. we don't want it to happen that that's it when mm-hmm. you know when they're all gone and missed out an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important that everybody meets a survivor and hears their story firsthand. I think that's very important advice. Um, we appreciate your sharing personal and professional interactions you have um, with the Holocaust and, and preserving the stories. Um, and thank you for the work you do with our students. It certainly, it takes a certain sensitivity that you have and a certain planning and thoughtfulness to be a coordinator of a program like this. Um, it's a difficult program to coordinate, like you said, especially with eighth graders, um, to have them connect and to feel comfortable. So thank you for doing it. We appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you. Don't forget to print up your table talk. Wishing everybody a Shabbat Shalom. This week, we observe uh, Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzma'ut. 
And uh, we are privileged to have Mara Michanasanian, our first grade uh, Limude Kodesh teacher, joining us today on our podcast. Mara Michal, thank you for joining us. Bokertov. Bokertov. Todah So describe for everyone, what's Yom Atzmaut like in Israel? So Yom Atzmaut, Independence Day, comes a day after Yom Azikaron, Memorial Day, a day where we remember all the soldiers who, who lost their life in order for us to be able to celebrate Yom Atzmaut and live in Eretz Israel. So we carry all those emotions and excitement into Yom Atzmaut where we bond together and go out to the streets and celebrate and sing and party. And the whole spirit in it is just of excitement and mm-hmm. happiness. And, you know, as an Israeli living in Chutz Laaretz, what, what does Yom Atzmaut feel like for you when you're here? It's bittersweet. It's bitter because I would like to be able to be celebrating physically in Eretz Israel. It's sweet because I'm privileged and I, that I have the chance to be here and share my enthusiasm and love to Eretz Israel with my students. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. So what, what do you miss most about living in Eretz Israel? That's a very easy question to answer. Mm-hmm. My family. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be so far away from the family on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And it's even more challenging when it comes to Shabbat, holidays, and special occasions, which I don't always get to share with them. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about growing up in, in Eretz Yisrael. What, what was it like? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in a moshav many, many years ago when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, those days we got to be connected more to nature. We used to spend a lot of our times outdoors, riding bicycle, going out, playing sports. We pretty much came home only when it was time to eat and go to sleep. <laughs> and, and how is that different than, you know, you're raising your children in, in America, in New York. Well, how is that different for them? So my first two ones, I got the chance to raise in Israel. So they pretty much got the taste of how it was to be more independent and more outdoors. When we came here, I felt that I needed to be more protective of my, of my children. I needed to be more supervising uh, where they went, who they went with, mm-hmm. when they're coming back. Mm-hmm. They were less independent than mm-hmm. the kids in Israel. Yeah. When, and when did you make Yerida? How old, how old were you? I was 27. Wow, 27. And you came here with two children. With two children. Very different. And you grew up on a Moshav. I grew up in a Moshav. In New York yes. City. Very different. Extremely different. And what did you think about New York City when you were living, before you came here, when you lived in Israel? <laughs> so I thought it was a dangerous place. <laughs> yes. When I came here at four o'clock in the afternoon, I believed that we weren't allowed to go outside. Right. It took me a while <laughs> To understand that it's safe. Right. Okay. I'm glad. I hope you feel safe now. Yes, I do. Um, you have a child who's in the Israeli army. What feelings does that raise for you right now? Mixed feelings. Um, again, it's very hard to have a child go so far away from home for two years. And even though I have a lot of family in Israel, she's still a lone soldier. And it's hard for me that I can't help her on a daily basis. On the other hand, we are very proud of the choices she made. Um, she grew up as an American here and she was born here, yet she felt that it wasn't enough to hear about Eretz Israel and speak Yivrit. She actually wanted to be a part of serving Eretz mm-hmm. Israel. Mm-hmm. And tell us about your service. You did Sherut Lumi. Yes, I grew up in a house of immigrants. My parents came from England and they believed and raised us to believe 
that Israel is the best place for Jewish people to live. And in order for that to happen, you need to help it grow and do something about it. So we knew that once we finished high school, we were to serve the country for two years. The options was going to the army or doing Shorut Lumi. Uh, I chose Shorut Lumi. I served uh, my two years in a Lynn hospital where I work on daily basis with children with um, mental and physical disabilities. When you go to Shorut Lumi, you feel in your head, what can I do and how can I give best to make this those two years productive? But the truth is, when I finished it, it was what I got. Mm-hmm. I matured, I got to see life from a different perspective, and it was just a tremendous lesson in life. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. When you, when you give, you gain. You That's really so do. true. What do you wish our students here at Har Torah understood about life in Israel? I would like them to know that Eretz Israel is a safe place, and no matter what country you come from and what level of religion you maintain, Israel is always a home for you. It is. That's true. So you use a lot of costumes and fun in your class to teach Yivrit. Uh, what do you enjoy about teaching Hebrew to our students? I love it when I come, they come in on the first day and I speak to them in Yivrit. They open big eyes and they're very confused. They don't understand most of what I say, if any at all. And then when I bring the Yivrit to life by acting out and wearing costume, they get to relate to it and open to it and start enjoying it. And very quick, I see that they actually understand a lot of mm-hmm. what I teach. And I'm always amazed how much they know by the end of the year, I can actually have a conversation with them in, he- in Ivrit. And, it's, and it feels amazing. The transformation is amazing. Amazing. Every year. Every year. <laughs> so what advice do you have for parents in Chutz Laaretz living here? How do we cultivate a strong connection in our children to Eretz Yisrael? I feel it's amazing that the children have the chance to come to a yeshiva, learn about their Judaism, but also be so connected uh, with the love and understanding to Eretz Yisrael mm-hmm. and learning the language. I feel it's very important that when they go home, uh, there will be a continuance to what they learn in school, asking them what they learn and bringing, you know, uh, the awareness of where they came from and what they mm-hmm. should learn more about. Right. And trying to keep Israel central at home. Yes. You know, we always say what's going on in Israel, thinking about Israel like it's our people, it's our home. That's that's what the children should feel. So Israel should really be almost a daily part in mm-hmm. some way in mm-hmm. the family's mm-hmm. life. That's true. Okay, wishing everybody um, a Chag Sameach and Yom Atzmaut um, and a Shabbat Shalom. Please don't forget to... Uh, print your table talk. Thank you, more, Michal, for joining us. My pleasure. Chag Sameach. I have the privilege of sitting here today with Kim Marshall. Um, if you're an educator, you know that he's somewhat of a celebrity. Uh, many of us educators receive his weekly Marshall memo summarizing the most current research and articles in education. Um, he was a former, uh, he's a former Boston principal. He's a consultant and a writer. Um, actually, in our school, we do use your method of um, observing teachers and giving feedback. So thank you for all you've done for education. My pleasure. And thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Welcome to Hartora. So tell us about your journey in education. What made you enter the field? 
It's kind of a, a bumpy story. I was uh, a <clears throat> senior in college in 1969, and uh, those with a sense of humor, uh, no, sense of history and humor will remember that that was the height of the Vietnam War. And I was actually headed for a different career, uh, but at that point, uh, not wanting to go to Vietnam because I deeply believed the war was immoral, uh, I was looking around for other forms of national service, and it turns out that urban teaching was a deferrable uh, activity at that point. So you could serve the nation as an inner city teacher. I got a job as a sixth grade teacher, really with no intention of staying in the business. Uh, had a horrible first year, as many, <laughs> many teachers yes, do. Yes, many teachers do. Uh, but I survived it, uh, learned from it, got better, and actually was at that middle school in Boston for 11 years. Wow. Got hooked. <laughs> and then toward the end of that, uh, I started to uh, think about school leadership, which I'd never thought about before. You know, I had a principal who just sat in her office, never left her office, <laughs> left me alone. That was nice. I became a creative and interesting teacher, a uh, sixth grade teacher with a self-contained class, interestingly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then I got this bee in my bonnet about being a principal, went back to grad school, had a little detour in the Boston Central Office as director of curriculum, and finally got to be a principal of a mm -hmm. large elementary school in Boston, actually the oldest elementary school in America. Well, which one is that? 1639, the Mather wow. School. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was there for 15 years. So a big chunk of my life, uh, 32 years, was Boston Public Schools. Anyway, that's how I got into it, was wow. avo avoiding the Vietnam draft. And, and what, what lessons have you learned in your, in your road oh, on education? Oh, my education? goodness <laughs> me. Uh, well, I guess, I guess a big one is how difficult teaching is. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my horrible first year, <clears throat> and then figuring out how to teach, how to you know, do classroom management, how to do curriculum and so forth. Uh, both of my children now are actually teachers. Uh, mm -hmm. My daughter teaches seventh grade in Boston. My wow. son teaches history, high school history in Seattle. Mm -hmm. They love the work, but we hear a lot from them and about the, about how difficult, especially the, the grading. The grading Grading's of, hard. Grading of English papers, mm -hmm. grading of history papers, but teaching is so hard. But another big thing is the, is the critical role of school leadership. Uh, and I'm yes. sitting here with the school leader in her, <laughs> yes. in her office. Yeah. I just think they, they set the tone, uh, they set the mission, they set the mm -hmm. expectations. Uh, and I think if they get into classrooms a lot and have a good conference, which sounds like you're doing, getting into classrooms. As per your advice. You know, seeing what's going <laughs> on. But a lot, of, a lot of good principals do that. Uh, so those are big, big lessons. Um, I think uh, another big change and big lesson is when I was a teacher in the 1970s, uh, there was very little curriculum direction in the United States. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of freedom in Massachusetts. I had a lot of freedom to teach what I wanted, and I taught stuff that entertained the kids, mm -hmm. like the Kennedy assassination mm -hmm. and other stuff. I did stuff that I was interested in. But when you step back from it, that's really not defensible. <clears throat> you really need some kind of curriculum mm -hmm. coherence. My, my daughter actually had a horrible uh, moment in her high school a few years ago when she was... Uh, doing a credit recovery course for some kids in her Boston high school. And she had taught 12th grade at that point. And uh, she was using Ellie Wiesel's book, Night, uh, mm -hmm. as a text. She noticed a boy looking very troubled. And she went over to him, and uh, she realized that he had actually never been taught about the Holocaust. Wow. So he made it all the way through the Boston schools. Wow. And that's kind of a dramatic example of how you need an organized curriculum. I mean, mm -hmm. with math, it's pretty straightforward, you know, algebra, oh, right. tr trigonometry, and so forth. But with history, with with science, with so forth, you need, mm -hmm. and I think that's a that's a huge change. We now have, 
Right. I don't know to what degree you go with the Common Core. We uh, are Common Core mm-hmm. lined, and we were actually four years wow. before. We started rolling it out four wow. years before it was yeah. a requirement. So that really is pretty, the closest we're going to get to a national curriculum. Mm-hmm. But that's just the what. It's not the right. how-to. It's not the how-to. And, and I think the how-to is where you need the creativity. Mm-hmm. So I think it's that balance between clarity and the what. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the grade level where we do immigration. This is where we do algebra. And then the how-to, mm-hmm. you're really constantly challenging teachers because you know, middle school and high school teachers have found that a lesson that goes well first period yeah. can go poorly second. Same right. lesson. Right. You know, Every be, group <clears throat> is different, different yeah. dynamic. So back to back to my first point of how hard teaching is, how, is. how we need the dedication, how we need the, mm-hmm. the spirit, we need the, the, just the plain hard work, uh, and, and also the humor and all the other important things. Humor is important. Teaching. Yep. So we're in elementary school. What is the single most important thing that students can leave elementary, middle school with, let's say? You know, I was thinking about this question because you sent me the questions earlier, and uh, I really am pretty ambivalent. Um, so a lot of the schools that I work in are inner city schools where kids are coming in with, with a lot of disadvantages in terms of being read to and so forth. Uh, and, and so for a kid in a school like that, I would say they've got to know reading, writing, <laughs> arithmetic, mm-hmm. and so forth. For kids who chose their parents well and, and are, you know, come into school with more advantages, uh, I would say that one of the big outcomes would be that, that they have a passion for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if they don't end up pursuing that in Just their lives. Just having a passion. They have a passion. So they, they've been exposed to mm-hmm. symphony orchestras, to jazz combos, to scientists in action, to, to zoos, to... Um, you know, to planetariums, to, to you know, to mm-hmm. teachers who have passions, to mm-hmm. books, <clears throat> you know, Judith Vioris, I mean, whatever it is, they, they've been exposed to a lot and they've latched onto something. Something that and, they, it's special. And they've given an opportunity to pursue it. So, mm-hmm. they, you know, like whether they were crazy about dinosaurs or something like that. And again, that may not be what their lives mm-hmm. end up being. I mean, for example, my son, uh, David Marshall, was uh, who's now 34 years old, actually tomorrow, but mm-hmm. uh, he is—he uh, was a math science maniac mm-hmm. and you know gifted and all mm-hmm. that in school. Mm-hmm. But then he ran into a history teacher in high school who fired him up about history. Now he's a history teacher. That's it. So you can change course, but I think pa- being passionate mm-hmm. and really getting immersed in something—that's a really good thing for kids to have. That's great. So speaking to our parent body and with all your experience, how can parents best partner with the school? Well, the thing I'm hearing increasingly now is setting limits on technology. Yes. Uh, you know, plugging it into a charger at night so it's not in the bedroom at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, setting limits on the amount of screen time that kids have. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching the social media vigilantly mm-hmm. to make sure about the bullying and the, the, the mm-hmm. that nastiness that's happening there. Right. Uh, exposing kids to to good social media and to good news sources, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to making sure that they're getting a balanced source of, of outside news as they get older and tune into Agreed. the world. But I think use of technology uh, and limits on technology is a huge thing. We actually had, this is pre-internet, but when, when our son was growing up, at one point he took the challenge of going without television for a whole year. Right. Uh, just major sports events and, uh, you know, World Series and, and movies were okay, but no television watching and he did it and he got $365 at the end of the year in wow. cash which he put in a savings account but that uh, he re-upped five times and that turned him into a reader mm-hmm. so I think just setting limits and just getting making sure the kids read and, and then find authors that they love you know just getting it's funny that you say that my parents um, also took the television away from us for really? a year yes wow and um, I actually don't enjoy watching TV since then huh. 
I you, never got back into it all those probably, years later. You probably hated it at the time, right? I mean, you we were a little mad at them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were a little upset. Yeah. So I, I think television again with, with limits on it. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, it's all it's all the the, the devices. But I mean, yep. a lot of kids are spending all their time on these. I things, know, constantly I know. checking in. It's worse constant, than television, really. The, the fear of missing out on something, mm-hmm. especially for teenagers. I mean, this is this is not good. And I think the kids who do well in this era are going to be kids who discover how to self-monitor. You know, they, you can't always depend on the parents when they get to college. You know, right. They're, they're they have to learn how to turn it off themselves. So they have to know how to mo- go, you know, go cold turkey at sometimes, have mm-hmm. sabbaticals, have right. whole weekends where they don't have it, and, and just develop uh, themselves. And also more fa- – I have a college classmate. I, I mentioned I'm coming up on my 50th reunion. Sherry Turkle is one of my classmates, and she – uh, has written a series of books about, I think the latest one is is beca- uh, something about ending conversation. So it's about face-to-face conversation mm-hmm. versus, you know, mediated by media. Right, which is scary. I know there's a group of principals waiting downstairs to, mm-hmm. to hear from you. So I guess our last question is, we're learning about empathy as a school this mm. this year. We're focusing on it. Uh-huh. So what, what do you recommend for us in terms of how to teach that to mm. children, how to be empathetic? Well, I think literature is probably one of the best things. It's really good children's books and young adolescent books. You're up to eighth grade, right? We are, and we do do a book of the month about empathy Uh this year. Yeah, but I think just really good, Mm -hmm. um, you know, literature, uh, you know, whether it's Hemingway or, or, you know, Judith Viorst or, I mean, whoever it is, I mean, getting into and really getting immersed in books, you know, Mm -hmm. getting lost in books and then talking about them face-to-face. Right. I think a lot of face-to-face conversation, I think. And teachers using, you know, teachers not, hopefully you don't have teachers who are lecturing a lot. They have kids doing a lot of conversations and groups right. and we so forth. We do encourage that, yes. Yeah, and, and just getting into other kids' lives so they understand. I mean, but you got a great theme there. I mean, mm-hmm. empathy is, you probably not want to teach it too frontally. Right. You know, probably more, you know, read this novel. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what can you discover about this person? And what do you, you know, can you put, because kids are egocentric, of course, unlike adults. But, you know, kids are, <laughs> you know, they're in their own world. And how do you get them out of their world? How do you get them to walk in somebody else's moccasins? I mean, right. That's a huge thing. Well, how scary is it that there's a lot of communication where children don't see the facial response right. that a person has when they text them something. And yeah. they're really growing up with a lot of communication like that. Mm-hmm. So that that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons we thought it was important. I think it's a great theme. Yeah. Thank you very much. I know you're very busy. I appreciate your agreeing to join our podcast. Um, wishing everybody at home a Shabbat Shalom. And do not forget to print your table talk. For this week's podcast, uh, we are honored to have uh, Karen Treiger, who visited our school to speak to our eighth grade students and our Names Not Numbers students. Um, Karen is an author, a retired attorney, and her book, My Soul is Filled with Joy, which is a Holocaust story of her in-law story, um, just won the Independent Publishers uh, Book Bronze Level Award. And... um, in world history, right? Welcome, Karen. Thank, Thank you for you. coming. So happy to be here. Thank you, Basha. So did you enjoy meeting our students? I did. They were, they were great. Great mm-hmm. audience. They, they listened beautifully. They sat attentively. And they had very good questions afterwards. I enjoyed very much watching how they connected, the Names Not Numbers students connected the stories that they researched to the story that you told them. They did. Tried to match things Yeah, up. yeah. I there thought. was a young, it was one of the young women that had a, her, her interviewer, interviewee had typhus and mm-hmm. Esther had typhus. She connected that up. That was good. That was a great question. Yeah. So tell us, what started you on this journey to, to write your in-law story? Um, it's really pretty simple. I just saw they died. My mother-in-law died 21 years ago, and Sam, my father-in-law, died 16 years ago. 
And I was really just terrified that their story would die with them. And I did not want that to happen. Mm-hmm. It, is, uh, it is a scary thought. Yeah. What advice do you have for young writers? Advice. <laughs> Don't be afraid to start. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest. The hardest thing is to start. Because deciding to do it is the first step in writing anything. Mm-hmm. And um, secondly, if you have an idea, try it out. And if someone gives you constructive criticism, mm-hmm. take it with an open heart. It's hard to do. It's very hard because mm-hmm. you, write, you write something and you put a little piece of your soul in mm-hmm. it. It's like the, you know, in Harry Potter, the little pieces of the soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like that. But, but people are giving it to you. They mean, they mean to help you. Mm-hmm. Take it that way mm-hmm. and you will have a better product at the end. Well, that is encouraging to hear because yes. as our parents know, a lot of our writing curriculum is centered around editing. Editing mm-hmm. is your best friend. We spend a long time, we stretch out that writing process, and we do peer editing and self-editing. Fantastic. That is the way to go. So what is the most important message that we can give our children about writing a piece of work? Well, as I thought about this, that's a hard one because I have a lot of advices. But I would say before you begin your piece and as you're shaping it in your mind, think about what you want your reader to take away. Mm -hmm. Because if you're writing something, you're hoping someone's going to read it. But then of equal value is don't be afraid to change your mind mm-hmm. in the middle. Because, mm-hmm. like, for example, I started out to write Sam and Esther's story. That was my goal. But then in the middle, well, as I started, Sam and Esther's story became my story. Mm-hmm. And all the things that happened in 1940s came into the world, into the 2000s, mm-hmm. into my life mm-hmm. in a very impactful way. And so the message, messages that I hope are gleaned from readers who read this book actually ended up to be something different than what I started out with. And mm-hmm. so I was really open to what happened. And that, that helped create the book that, I, that mm-hmm. I ended up writing. And I think it meant a lot to the students when you talked about, their, about your journey. Mm-hmm. And part of the documentary that they're making is actually they're, they're talking about their feelings through the process and their, how they handled it. That, and hopefully we'll send you a copy of our documentary I would when, love, it, when, yes, uh, definitely. when it comes out. Um, what did you learn about yourself through this whole process of researching and writing this story? Oh, well, I learned a lot. But first of all, I, I learned that I could write a book because I was a lawyer. Wow. And I wrote a lot of things. And this is a very different thing that I wrote. So that was fun. Um, but actually, I learned the lessons that I hope are that are conveyed through my presentation and also mm-hmm. through the book. I learned them very deeply. Mm-hmm. They're lessons we all learn from our parents, thank God. Right. But they're lessons that I learned, relearned again in a deeper way. Mm-hmm. Number one. Don't take your life for granted. Don't take what you have for granted mm-hmm. in life. Um, uh, the, the listeners of this podcast don't, don't know, but my in-laws lived in a pit in the Polish forest for mm-hmm. a year, and we got to see that pit mm-hmm. 75 years incredible. later. Incredible. Incredible. Well, don't imagine. use the word incredible because it means it's not believable. It was, right. It's remarkable. It's, it's remarkable. astounding. And so um, after that happened, I was like, okay, I have a home to live in. Mm-hmm. I have a bed to crawl into right. at night. I have food. Mm-hmm. I have clothes. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to take any of that for granted mm-hmm. ever again. Mm-hmm. And um, I also l- really, really learned deeply about choices that we make. Mm-hmm. People in the Holocaust were faced with very stark, mm-hmm. very difficult choices. Mm-hmm. Every choice was life or death for everybody, whether you were a Jew, whether you were a Christian, whether you were, honestly, whether you were a German. Mm-hmm. They were all life and death for somebody. We don't live in that life, thank God. We live today and we're not, mm-hmm. we're not in that in that world, thank God, but our choices matter. The choices that we make matter, and we sometimes don't even know what, how much it matters until years later. Right. And so 
that's important. Mm-hmm. And and then finally, I, a, a message that I gave to the kids, which is mm-hmm. your own family story is important. Mm-hmm. And look into it now before it's too late. Because mm-hmm. uh, as I told the kids, we got to meet these three surviving children of the righteous Gentiles that we met, right. that were alive at the time. That was an unbelievable uh, They were nine, story. the ones that we got to meet in, during the war were nine, 11, and 17. Mm-hmm. And um, this, the one who was 17, we met her when she was 90. She died months after we met her. Unbelievable. Right. And so, no, don't use that word. Oh, believable. Believable. Remarkable. Amazing. And, um, and I was so struck by if I had waited half a year to go right. on that trip, we wouldn't have met her. That's true. Yeah. That's true. The so story itself is remarkable. Yes. Um, I mean, hopefully you'll read the book. Uh, my soul is filled with joy. Uh, but your in-laws met in the forest after your father-in-law ran away from the Treblinka uprising and your mother-in-law was hiding there for a year. So the storyline itself is just, as you said during your presentation, a series of miracles. A series of miracles. And one of the things that I think makes this this book in general and the presentation a really good educational tool is because um, there are so many aspects of what happened during World War II and to the Jews during the Holocaust. But this The two of them, their stories, includes not only what happened in the beginning when so many Jews moved from the German-occupied Poland to the Soviet-occupied Poland, Mm -hmm. but it also includes what happened with the Einsatzgruppen, with the the killing fields, Mm -hmm. and all the million and and a half people that were murdered by bullets, and then it includes a death camp. Mm -hmm. My father-in-law was there from day one until day uprising Mm -hmm. in Treblinka, Mm -hmm. and it includes hiding in a forest, and it includes the righteous Gentiles. Like... It's it's a big package. Right, it's a full story. Yeah. It's a full story. What what is like your favorite moment in the book? So my favorite moment in the book is really when we went to back to Poland, went with my whole family, my husband and my our four children and a, a son-in-law. And um we went back and like my husband was trying to figure out like his name is Shlomo, my husband, you know him well. Yes. Um we are friends from Seattle. Friends from Seattle. And um he was trying to decide how do you say thank you? To people who took food to your parents when they hid in a pit. Like, what do you say? Chocolates didn't quite seem like the right idea, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, he decided to compose some music to the to Tehillim, chapter 30. And and <clears throat> the, the words that he chose, the first pasuk is on his father's grave in Israel, which is, Hashem helita min sho'ol nafshi, chitani miyor dibor. God, you brought me up from hell, and you raised me out of the depths of a pit. Mm-hmm. That's on his kever wow. in Israel. Literally and the but psukim, if you go a few more psukim, it talks about the righteous ones and behodu lezecher kodesho that where the righteous ones should sing to God's name. And anyway, it goes on for a few more psukim, and he thought this is these are the righteous ones. Right. That's what we call Perfect. Gentiles like these people, right. the righteous ones. So he composed some music. So he got. I describe in the book how he how he explained this to them mm-hmm. with a translator, of course. And told them this, and then he had taught us the song in the morning. He just in the morning on the bus ride in, wow. and so we all sang the song. We stood so and beautiful. sang the song to them. That's so beautiful. It was great. They probably appreciated. They that. were there was not a dry eye in the house, not wow. a dry eye. Yeah, that that uh, wow. So I was telling you before that our theme of the year at Hartora is is cultivating empathy in our students. So. How can we do that as parents, as educators? What advice do you have for us? Um, well, first of all, I think that Yeshua for picking that empathy, I think is hard, hard to teach, but truly very important to, to try to, to inculcate in our children, in ourselves, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, um, I think empathy comes from trying your best to feel someone else's pain. Right. 
and trying to be sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, sometimes an extreme story like Sam and Esther's story, which is so extreme in our lives in America today, that it shakes us up a little bit. Yep. And it allows us to think about the kindness that was extended to them and how can maybe we bring some kind more kindness into our lives and into the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. And if you can think in any situation, how can I bring kindness into this situation? Mm-hmm. you will automatically find a way to feel empathetic towards another person because mm-hmm. you're thinking about it in that way instead of like, oh, that person's ridiculous. Right. You think, wow, there's something going on for that person that maybe maybe you know about or maybe you don't know about. Mm-hmm. But dan le kafschut and give everyone the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. and, and, and help. I'm not saying to be a naive naive American, which my husband calls me all the time. Shoma <laughs> calls me, oh, you're such a naive American. <laughs> but okay, maybe I am, but I just... Um, I try not to be too naive, but naive enough that that kindness is the first thing I reach for. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, what messages do you have for our parent body about the importance of telling, you know, our stories, our family stories to the next generation? Parents, whoever's out there listening, we all have a lot of Holocaust fatigue. I know that. There's Holocaust stories, and we're all like, enough, another Holocaust story, enough. But I will tell you, through my researching and writing and talking about this book now to many, many people, let's take the lessons that we can glean from stories that happened during the war and find a way to turn those lessons into things we can help our children grow into strong, proud, resilient Jews. Yes. Because our Jewish history is long and painful. Yes, it there's is. There's <laughs> happiness and there's a lot of sadness. Yes. And we need to be resilient and we need to be strong and proud. But most important, I think, so then how are we going to do that without Holocaust fatigue? So here's a way. I think I think I found the way. I think my book tells the way. Because if we make these stories personal, mm-hmm. when, when I tell my children what happened to me, they were part of a lot of the story anyway, but like when you tell something that happened to you, whether it was a Holocaust survivor that you knew during your life, mm-hmm. because our kids aren't going to have those opportunities as much. You're doing that now, right. but they're, they're going away from us. They're leaving. Right. That's the Names Not Numbers project yeah. that we're part yeah, of. Yeah, of course. And it's fantastic because we are the last generation mm-hmm. that's going to get the, the honor and the privilege to know those that those, those survivors. Mm-hmm. So, but if we can tell those stories through our own lens, because mm-hmm. when you tell your kids a story that's something that happened to you versus something that happened to some guy down the street or somebody that happened to Poland or whatever, mm-hmm. it seems very far away, histor- historical happened to me Mm -hmm. and you tell them and you look them in the eyes and you say this is what happened to me and this I met this person and this how it affected me Mm -hmm. you make it personal right whatever it is if you go if you've ever been to a holocaust memorial museum and something affected you tell that story that certainly touched the students when you showed them the forest Mm -hmm. I saw their faces that you yourself went to the forest and took a picture there and you went back to the house and you went back to the the house and the the pit where they hid and I, I think that really resonate with them and then it does become part of your story yeah and I think that's how I think that's how we can keep it fresh and alive and and to learn the lessons for ourselves Mm -hmm. and to pass them on to our kids in the future wow very powerful thank you thank you for addressing our students for visiting our school great pleasure for joining us Um, everyone at home don't forget to print up your table talk Uh, wishing you all a Shabbat Shalom